Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. It is wonderful to be back uh, with you again. I took uh, about three months off to rest and reflect myself, and I am so excited to be back on the show, and we have a great lineup of guests uh, for the coming months uh, for you, and I am excited to have the opportunity to share all of these wonderful museum professionals with you. Uh, You know, I, I will just make this personal statement uh, three years ago when I started the show, I thought, hmm, how many people are in the museum world that are doing really interesting and relevant things? Well, you know, that was really a naive question on my part because there are literally thousands and I feel that I'm only scratching the surface of all of the really solid and wonderful work uh, that people are doing in our field. So I am so pleased that I have a chance to celebrate them and share them with you. And today Day is no exception. So for our, my very first show back, I have a fabulous guest, Michelle Moon is um, a writer and museum professional. She has uh, d- worked in interpretation and program development for several major exhibitions, including at the Peabody Essex Museum, and she was previously uh, worked as Director of Education at Strawberry Bank Museum in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and recently she has been investigating the topic of food. Now, you know, several museums uh, that I have been involved with uh, have used food as as sort of a lens to look at things. There was uh, several interesting muse- uh, traveling exhibitions over the years, but I think Michelle really looks at this topic in a much more in-depth and uh, comprehensive way. Uh, And she is currently, she currently, she is the author of a book we'll be talking about today, Interpreting Food at Museums and Historic Sites. Now that was published uh, in 2015. by Roman and Littlefield, which of course now is also carrying all of the books that we uh, formerly associated with the American Alliance of Museums. So they are carrying those now. And uh, a book that will be upcoming, we'll talk a little bit more about it. She's co-author with Kathy uh, Stanchion. Uh, called The Missing Ingredient, How History Can Help Reinvent the Food System. So, uh, Michelle, it looks as if you were looking at food going into the past and also food going into the present and the future. And so thank you so much for being on our show today. Oh, it's my great pleasure. I'm really excited to discuss this topic with you. And uh, I find that we're all interested. So um, I'm looking forward to chatting. 
Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I gave a little bit of a bio about your career trajectory and um, it, sort of things that, that have uh, uh, sh- you've been doing as a museum professional, but I'm wondering, uh, I find it always interesting to hear in my guests' own words how they sort of look at their career trajectory. And you know, really, those things that have uh, shaped how you think about the role that museums are, are playing in, in society today. Yeah, I I love when you do this on your show because there are so many paths into our field and I'm happy to talk about mine and it's um, just as idiosyncratic as many, I think. I started out really as an educator and trained to be a classroom teacher, spent some time teaching environmental education programs and summer camps as well. So I had a a very place-based and interdisciplinary start uh, in thinking about education and reaching the public and and using learning theory um, and ideas that were relevant and exciting to connect people to new ideas. So coming from that background, uh, I really brought into my work in my early museum education jobs ideas about using uh, contemporary issues and trends and popular culture, things that people care about and are part of their everyday lives to help them connect to the past and to larger ideas and, you know, complex systems of thinking. So I started out, um, my first museum job happened to be at Mystic Seaport. I transitioned from working in elementary education to working in a residential education program that took place on the grounds of Mystic Seaport, which is a large uh, maritime history museum and historic village um, here in uh, Mystic, Connecticut. And there I taught basic uh, school programs and developed some curriculum for outdoor experiences, learning experiences with the river and maritime history and marine life. Um, And I really fell in love with the museum profession there. So I started to think about more seriously making that my career trajectory, and I eagerly tried to soak up every type of exposure I could get to different forms of interpretation, ways of reaching the public, and the theory uh, behind what we were doing and how was teaching in a museum setting different from a classroom setting. Taking that uh, with me, I moved on to work at Strawberry Bank Museum as the director of education there, and it was an exciting time for that museum, which was a preserved city neighborhood in the heart of a very lively and very active uh, northeastern city in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, and there I, is where I really began to get into the topic of food and its role in interpretation. And uh, from there, moved on to working at Peabody Essex Museum, where I oversaw the uh, newly launched adult programs team. So in that that I had kind of come full circle from teaching youth to teaching adults and thinking about the unique um, opportunities and requirements of adult education, which also feeds into this um, food topic because one of the you know, issues and decisions, sets of decisions that adults have to make every day uh, surround food, and so it becomes a, a very vital topic that's on people's minds. And so I find that where I'm happiest in museum work is addressing issues contemporary challenges, civic questions, personal um, quests and personal needs to really try to make museums useful to people and usable by them to solve the problems they face individually and that we face together as a society. Um, I look, I'm very interested in following all of the discussion now about access and inclusion and justice 
food plays an important role in those issues as well. And I would like to see our museums continuing to work on these ideas of getting uh, people connected not only with the contemporary state of the issues that concern them, but how we got to this place, what the history is of these major questions we're facing, and what we can learn from material culture, from the past, from the arts, and from the sciences uh, to help us address our needs today. Wow, that's that is uh, that's fabulous. And as I I had mentioned in your introduction, you clearly are looking at food uh, beyond the you know either how we cook it uh, or how we uh, select it. So that's. I can't wait to unpack some of these very, uh, I mean, provocative in a very uh, uh, positive way, uh, because you're right, it is, it's a universal, uh, no matter what you choose to eat, you are going to eat something, and uh, mm-hmm. so it is something that, that binds us together. Um, so, you know, how... How have you started to, you know, look at ways of connecting uh, this topic to our audiences? Well, I think I might, um, I might go back to my time at Strawberry Bank, where, where that really started. I was fortunate to work there on a site that boasted several historic gardens, and many of them were gardens that grew food that were Uh, appropriate to the period of a historic house that was situated next to them or nearby. And I worked with a wonderful horticulturalist and educator there named John Forty, who was just extremely knowledgeable about the uses of plants and um, the preparation of food uh, in both medicinal and culinary ways. So we had a lot of common interests and worked together to find ways for that Um, food material, those gardens, to be really thoroughly integrated into the program, um, which which was work that had been going on there for some time, but that we really pushed, I think, to a new level. So our our idea for connecting those gardens and landscapes to the public uh, was to get engaged with the international organization Slow Food USA, and I'm sure uh, many of your listeners have heard of that. It's, it's an international network of volunteers who care about improving the food system in general and access to food and the quality of food uh, and, and really uh, finding alternatives to some of the damages that our industrialized food system um, comes along with. So we, uh, what we did was open a chapter of Slow Food USA, partnering with many other activists and farmers and uh, sustainability advocates in our community, and that chapter gave us a a platform for using the museum and integrating the museum into the wider activity going on around food in our area. And I'm sure no matter where you live, in the U.S. or outside the U.S., you can see that um, food has become one of our most significant public concerns in the last 10 or 15 years. We uh, date some of that interest to the sort of explosion of popular press around the time that Michael Pollan published Omnivore's Dilemma, Barbara Kingsolver published Animal Vegetable Miracle, you know, these were phenomenal bestsellers that dealt in, um, you know, very specific and concrete ways with some of the issues around our food system. And so it, it took some people by surprise, but it just seems to be the cultural time to address um, our food and think about how to make it more safe, more palatable, more more easily accessed by uh, many different kinds of people. 
Um, so we were really riding that wave and working with Slow Food and several other local food organizations opened us up to the perspectives and talents of many people outside of the museum field and brought them into the fold so that we were able to start presenting programs that built on both the museum's historical expertise, but also the questions and talents and perspectives of chefs and farmers and food processors and food advocates who were active in uh, contemporary you know, outside the museum space, just in communities and working on farmers markets and opening restaurants and that sort of thing. Um, so those, some of the ways that we found to connect our audiences to that involved doing lots of um, what you may call garden to table cooking within the, the site of our historical exhibits, quite a few workshops, um, working with local cooperative extension to bring in um, modern ways of canning and preserving food, teaching gardening skills uh, daily as part of the program, but also through workshops, summer camps, um, and special lecture programs. We had a monthly potlucks on the museum grounds where anyone was invited to come, join in, bring a dish, and talk about their um, you know, projects and interests together. And it really did bind uh, a lot of our community together and generated lots of additional projects. So that's how we began at Strawberry Bank. And, and from there, um, what I've been doing recently is compiling what I call my master list of um, museums and food and tracking the kinds of projects that are going on. And as you said, it's very exciting to see there are some traveling exhibitions that have been uh, very powerful and very fun, including ones on chocolate and coffee. Um, our Global Kitchen was a landmark exhibition that began at the American Museum of Natural History. And then there are also many food-specific museums that have opened in recent years uh, or are in the process of opening. So there's the um, SOFAB, the Museum of Southern uh, Food and Beverage Museum, and in New York City, the um, Museum of Food and Drink, or MOFAD, that are both doing wonderful and, um, you know, I think, very fresh uh, programming styles to connect people to food through some of the, you know, hot-button issues, but also some of the fun and uh, exciting and sometimes nostalgic or eye-opening ways that we can look at food. And then there are many museums that have been at this work for a long time, so I think about in St. Paul, um, the Mill City Museum, which has done some wonderful programming around the flour mill and the flour industry. And I was able to see some terrific role-playing programs featuring the women who, were, who played the real-life Betty Crocker role behind the scenes doing food chemistry and recipe development, a fascinating win to window into a particular food story. So there are lots of new museums and old museums that are embracing this topic. And in addition, programs, projects, campaigns um, that are really just proliferating right now. So I keep collecting these and I keep uh, finding new ones every day as I look at what's happening around the field. It, you know, it, it does strike me, uh, and you mentioned it, that we are in a, a an interesting time in terms mm -hmm. of evaluating how we get our food, where we get our food. I loved uh, 
uh, uh, animal vegetable miracle. It was one of my favorites. Uh, so I'm glad that that was something that sparked you as well. And what I'm uh, seeing is that there are so many different lenses in which to look at look at food. And I'm fascinated to learn that you uh, use that as a way of bringing your community together. Mm-hmm. I think that food has a unique power among the topics that we can deal with in museums. And um, first of all, it's completely interdisciplinary. So though my recent work on these two books has dealt with history museums specifically, it crosses all boundaries. You know, food appears in artwork, food it appears in economics and global history, it has, you know, many dimensions of science from botany and genetic modification to taste science and recipe development. Um, and, of course, it's crucial to history. So it allows, it, we can use this topic across the full spectrum of museums. I mean, if you even think, you know, you challenge yourself to think, well, where wouldn't you find it? You can find food in military history museums. It's an, a significant provision that you couldn't have a successful military campaign without finding ways to feed your, uh, your troops adequately. Uh, so there's almost no context in which food does not appear. And in almost all of those contexts, I believe you can find an interesting story or more than one interesting story to tell about food. And because there is a universality to it, we do have to eat every day. And food uh, is something that everyone has some degree of familiarity with. It's easy to find an entry point. So it becomes a powerful tool for drawing people in and drawing them together. And I liked that you mentioned the different lenses. One of the things that I've tried to do with this work is to suggest some lenses that may be less than obvious in our practice, um, particularly in history museums. I think you mentioned at the beginning that it's a pretty familiar experience to walk into a historic site or a local history museum uh, and maybe find a, a historic kitchen that might have hearth cooking going or might have a display of, of food as though it's, it's in the process of being prepared. Um, or you might see a display of product packaging for some local product that's been very important. So we've presented food, certainly, for a long time. But we've presented it typically through just a couple of narrow lenses. So in these books, and particularly in interpreting food at museums and historic sites, Michelle. what I try to do is... Michelle, yeah. I'm going to interrupt you, and, oh, I, yeah. and I always hate to do that, but we are going to take a, a short break here, and I do want to give you an opportunity to really expand on the lenses that you have uh, uh, described in the book, because I think that they are extremely uh, valuable for, for anyone who's interested in looking into this topic. So we're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, uh, Michelle is going to share with us some of the more unique lenses and ways we can look at food in a little more inclusive uh, way. Uh, and I'll just say something that I say at about every break. I enjoy thoroughly uh, when you all uh, chat with me and uh, uh, communicate, and I hope that we can expand that communication now that I am back on the air. So please continue to uh, uh Send me emails and tweets, and we will continue the conversation about museums in our current culture. And so stay tuned. There's so much more uh, to talk about today with Michelle Moon and uh, her work on food as an interpretive strategy. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. 
Number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. Uh, this is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. And today I am with Michelle Moon, and we've been talking about food. Uh, Michelle has shared with us how she became involved in this, this very broad topic. And during uh, break, we were continuing to discuss uh, the, uh, the, con- the idea that food is is in everything. It is one of those universals. We all eat, we all have to grow it, we all have to think about it, we all have to pay for it in some way. But in fact, as an interpretive strategy, it can also be a tad daunting because what isn't uh, a related to food. And right when we were going to break, Michelle was uh, going to share with us some of the lenses that she has used. And the word, Michelle, you used when we were discussing it on break is that that these are lenses, or I love your word, gateway, uh, in looking at food. And perhaps these, uh, talking about these gateways will help others uh, be less daunted when they're thinking about interpretive 
of strategies or programs around this topic. And uh, because focus is so very important uh, when we're doing interpretive uh, programming as well. So, uh, th- so Michelle, why don't you share with us the, uh, the, the topics, these gateways that you've uh, described in your book? I will be happy to, and that is so true, that, that focus is important. The stories are so broad. As I mentioned, food connects to everything, uh, but really thinking effectively about interpretive planning for food topics makes the resulting programs and exhibitions so much more sharply focused and more, um, ha- and they have a stronger impact on our audiences that way. So when I conducted the research for this book, I worked quite a bit with um, food history as it's currently being practiced and uh, food studies scholarship, which have taken off in um, academic environments over the last 30 years or so. But much of that scholarship hasn't filtered into museums for a variety of reasons at the rate that we might like. So I wanted to try to create that bridge, or as you said, um, gateways that might allow people to focus their inquiry and think about where their own sites and their own collections are very strong. And that might allow them to develop projects that reflect their own unique site identity and story, but also connect to larger ideas being discussed uh, by food studies scholars. So the five large um, sort of buckets or gateways that I ended up developing with the help of of a lot of those, uh, the work of those food scholars, are identity, which includes um, ethnicity, race, class, um, and gender. Second, there's health, uh, which is everything from fad diets and uh, vitamin science to the botanical principles that have been used for a long time to um, to develop, you know, encourage health in uh, pre-industrial populations. The third gateway is place, and I think this is a very powerful one because uh, we think of food as so connected to place and region and regional heritage and history. The fourth one uh, is is technology and fashion. So those two are are kind of grouped together because they both reflect uh, rapid changes in society that might have been brought about by innovations such as refrigeration or um, the mechanized uh, production of meats or by changes in taste such as restaurant dining becoming much more popular or the types of food fads that brought fondue to everybody's table uh, not too long ago. And the fifth lens is food politics, which, given that it's so uh, on our minds today, it's very interesting to realize that there are few issues that we're discussing now that do not have uh, a pretty long history in the United States or pre-colonial, I'm sorry, colonial America. So it's interesting to discover that issues like food safety and adulteration and, um, you know, tampering and toxicity go back to before uh, the founding of our government. These have always been concerns and problems. Um, so that uh, things like labor justice and the concerns of people who produce food uh, from slavery and abolition to the uh, strikes by United Fruit Workers in um, the 60s and 70s. So there are, there are many, many stories um, in each of these gateways and buckets that I think any site could find a way to connect to. But by interpreting their local material, their very specific content, in light of this recent scholarship that places it in a broader context, I think we're able to help people see that 
these stories are not just small and local and nostalgic, but they really have a great deal of impact on how we think about food and how it plays a role in our lives and our um, civic society. So we're getting to bigger things than just, you know, that the biscuits look delicious or the pie is tasty and, and starting to think about how food works as a, a system of transaction and a system of, of power that moves through our society and through our lives. You know, one of the things uh, that I, that I uh, occurs to me as, as you're talking about these, these five areas, and I think it is very uh, helpful uh, to be able to define these things in, in this way, is I just keep remembering in my own life how uh, the way my mother cooked versus how mm-hmm. my grandmother cooked, and in fact, how I am now cooking. I was very fortunate to have known both of my grandmothers who uh, they are both passed on now, uh, so no one can tell them that I'm going to uh, give the family secret away. They were <laughs> terrible cooks. They were absolutely <laughs> terrible. Uh, but they were cooking during the Depression and a war, a world war. They were both working uh, in to keep the families together. They didn't really have time to cook. They didn't have things like uh, slow cookers, and they had really tiny little ice boxes. And they just they didn't have time uh, to to experiment. Where my mother's generation and that sort of 50s mom, June Cleaver generation, man, she was always making something uh, (laughs) interesting and creative and sometimes just darn right crazy. Uh, The 50s was was that wonderful generation of, if we can put it in jello, we will. (laughs) But honestly, in how I now am going back and using food that really wasn't even uh, readily available in the groceries, Uh, kale, uh, different kinds of greens, and learning how to use those. I'm going back to some of the things that my grandmothers taught me how to do, whether they boiled it to death or not. They, uh, they, so it's interesting how even in just my own uh, personal experiences, there seems to have been a, a going back to the past. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering if you could sort of, is that part of a food identity that's going on? Or is it sort of a mixture of identity and technology? You know, we've got slow cookers now and, and <laughs> walks that we use. Um, I'm just wondering if you could uh, comment on that a little bit for me. Certainly. I, I love that story and the way that you're connecting this to your personal history and your memories. And I found that this is exactly what people do when they enter a museum environment where we're really digging into food history. They're starting to bring back um, their own past and their family's past and their experiences and compare those with what they know uh, and what they see on view and with their own lives. So it's really a wonderful avenue into a personal history as well as, as this wider exploration. But I think one of the issues you really raise is this idea of nostalgia And often food um, in pop culture and often in our museums is presented through a very nostalgic lens. And some of the messages that 
that are given out, whether we intend them or not, or that, you know, every grandmother was a wonderful cook and everyone raised their own food and, and had it, it was all local and fresh and wholesome um, back, you know, in the generation previous to the 50s and earlier. So that, that nostalgia is a very, very powerful force in our culture. But as we explore food history through those gateways of technology and identity, um, I think that we find a much more complicated story. And I want to help museums create the space for looking at that story and, and telling that story so that you can see your, your personal history reflected and the struggle of your grandmothers to uh, secure enough food and prepare it in a way that was you know, palatable for everyone and could sustain their energy in very difficult times. Uh, one of the things that we don't do very well in many museums is talk about hardship and struggle and poverty, which, of course, are still features of our food system, and uh, food insecurity remains with us today. So I think it's helpful if we can talk about those times, um, both to acknowledge the difficulties that people struggled through, um, but also to recognize that their techniques of survival and their techniques uh, to confront and deal with that hardship so, I mean, there are many strategies that I discuss in the book um, when people were struggling through hard times, when they had low incomes or were prevented from uh, access to food by various, by various issues, they found uh, lots of ways to make things work from substitution to food recycling, um, gleaning, that sort of, uh, these many strategies that helped people deal with that, that hardship. So it does have to do with identity, with um, class position, and with gender, and what opportunities were available to people. So we can start getting into understanding why, um, why if, if your family's secret is that your grandmothers weren't these, these amazing cooks that we have in our imagination, uh, what were the historical and social conditions that created that reality? Um, and then I think understanding their view also helps us understand what happened in later generations, the crazy experimentation of the 50s, the devotion to just abundance and food all the time and everywhere, and the political activity that went into creating what we call the Green Revolution, which was about you know, developing food systems that were supported with all sorts of um, chemical inputs and uh, pesticides and so forth to help to help increase crop yields, both domestically and around the world. So there was a lot of support for ending hunger forever, which you can understand uh, when the people who were driving that agenda were people who remember the shortages of World War I, the privations of the Depression, the rationing of World War II. Uh, of course, abundance would be something that they would yearn for. So some of these lenses really do help us to see our own lives in a much bigger light, and I think they help us to connect better where, you know, if I walked into a, um, a museum and saw those images of the, the grandmother with, you know, the Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving feast and that wasn't my reality, I might not be able to connect to that as well. But talking about some of the struggles, hardships, and uh, challenging conditions of the past really helps, helps us realize it was more complicated than, than those nostalgic images often suggest. You know... Uh- as as you're you're talking, uh, it, it occurs to me. It, it, well, it crystallizes for me something that I it, again going back to my my own experiences. Uh, the kinds of food that you could put on your table really does express 
privilege, doesn't it? Um, yeah. My, you know, I, going back to to my mother and the and all of the Jello salads, which seems to be quite <laughs> universal. Uh, mm-hmm. If you ever went to uh, to church or funerals in the mid in the Midwest, uh, you learned all sorts of things that you could put into Jello that really you probably shouldn't. Uh, but but it was also my mother was very proud that they could serve white bread. Mother, mm. my, you know, the idea that they could go to the store and buy Wonder Bread, which we now look at as sort of a vacuous, uh, mealy, you know, poor health uh, you know, symbol. Uh, but Mother, of course, remembers uh, when you had only whole wheat bread, and that was, and if you had bread at all or, or rolls, so, you know, it was always uh, a special occasion when you could have dinner rolls. So, you know, I'm, I, I guess what I'm hearing you say as well is that we really can trace uh, issues of, um, of privilege as well as it, trying to separate uh, and clarify our, our, our sense of class and privilege by the foods we eat. I think that's absolutely right. And it's very interesting to read uh, in food history and read about the diets of the elite and what they were aspiring to eat in colonial America and early America versus the diets of those who were middling um, and occasionally could enjoy one of those treats that had been defined as aspirational um, or those who were uh, either low income or enslaved who didn't have access at all to those kinds of, of treats. So I think you really can trace um, systems of privilege through food, and the story of wheat versus white bread is, is one of those that's really fascinating because we've seen the trajectory go from wheat bread, brown bread being the, the food of the common people, if they could even afford to have wheat, um, that it would be a rustic bread with the bran still in it, and the elite would eat the refined white bread right up through the time period you're talking about with dinner rolls and Wonder Bread. Um, but in our day, there's a- another aspect of being uh, having some food privilege is to be able to choose a, sort of a voluntary austerity, and that is something that we see in the past as well, um, saying, you know, where, where white bread might have been the aspirational food of 50 years ago today because we recognize some nutritional benefit and because uh, we, can, we can spend the money on it, we might choose to have wheat, which is something that an elite or a privileged person two or 300 years ago would probably have turned down in favor of white bread. So it's, it's very interesting to see how these foods change in value and their communication, what they communicate, changes in meaning over time. Um, and that voluntary... Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was, I was just going to say, again, it's always unfortunate, but I've got to stop you. We're going to take a, a second break, and then when we come back, uh, we can talk further about food and some of the examples of people who are doing really great uh, food exhibits and some of the suggestions that you make in your book about how others uh, might begin to approach this topic. So stay tuned. Um, I do want to say before we uh, rush into our final segment, that uh, you can get Interpreting Food at Museums and Historic Sites. Michelle's book by um, going, uh, is published 
published by Roman and Littlefield. Uh, you can also get to it through the AAM website and also the AASLH, uh, American Association of State and Local History. Uh, uh, you can, uh, we'll connect you back to uh, Roman and Littlefield to get uh, that book. And be sure to mark your calendars. In um, the coming months, there will be another book that is published by Routledge, uh, The Missing Ingredient, How History Can Help Reinvent the Food System. So, Mark, uh, both books are going, one is out and the other will be fabulous, I am sure. So, stay tuned. We have one more segment to go. Uh, talking to Michelle Moon about food. And this is Carol Bossert from Museum Life. We'll be back in a moment. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services, LLC, because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. You've been listening to Museum Life, and this is Carol Bossert. I've been interviewing Michelle Moon, uh, who is devoting uh, this portion of her museum career to looking at uh, different ways that we can interpret our past, present, and even our future, uh, looking forward uh, through the lens or the gateways of food. And I also want to mention before uh, we run out of time, 
that Michelle is doing a, an internship right now and she's uh, looking for her next opportunity. So I think uh, for those of you listening who might be interested in pursuing uh, food as, a, as an exhibition or interpretive topic, I'm sure Michelle would like to be happy to uh, help you think that through. So uh, you'll be able to contact Michelle uh, through the uh, Museum Life website. Uh, if you want further information, of course, you can always contact me. So, Michelle, let's talk a little bit. I mean, all of this sounds so fabulous and so exciting, but I'm sure that there are museum professionals out there going, well, but wait. So <laughs> what, are, what are some of the uh, uh, obstacles that you've found? Um, probably the primary obstacle that I run across is that people immediately think, of course, that, well, to interpret food well, we need to serve food. And there are myriad obstacles to that, as uh, anyone who has tried to take that step well knows. Um, the last 50 years or so, there has been a lot of growth and regulation in public health that means it's not easy any longer for us to um, make a, a, a recipe or a cake on a historic uh, cook stove and then cut a little piece and serve it out. So that, that direct, um, immediate type of using food is often off limits to us because of public health rules. And so many people feel that that's such an overwhelming obstacle that it can't be overcome. But in fact, in doing the research for this project, I discovered lots and lots of creative strategies for working with and uh, working within those regulations while still finding ways to use food in programming and develop programming about food that doesn't necessarily include a tasting. So one of the most... um, one of the most exciting examples that I have to offer is um, Old Sturbridge Village, which in recent years has done really wonderful work around food history and reaching the public with um, stories of the food culture of its time period. And they, rather than sort of conclude that there was nothing that could be done, um, their staff went to their local public health officer and sat down and really talked about the educational purpose and the value to learning of being able to have some tastings. And together they worked out plans for the use of a commercial kitchen where the staff could go in in off hours where it wasn't being used and prepare in bulk some uh, historic recipes like cornbreads or strawberry tarts, things that you know they, they created in season and then uh, just put away in the freezer. And so that allows them when there is uh, something that they'd like to offer a sample of to go pull that that perfectly commercially prepared food that meets all food safety standards out of the freezer and hand it out. And as uh, Deb Friedman told me, who who oversaw much of this, if uh, a historic interpreter has to put on a latex glove to give you a piece of cornbread, that is something that, you know, really doesn't ruin the illusion and that people are happy to overlook because they have the opportunity to taste uh, a representation of what that food was like and uh, understand at a sensory level what it says about life and culture in that time period. So I think that attitude of problem solving and openness to working with the local authorities can generate solutions that might not immediately be obvious. Um, Other solutions like that are working with local chefs and uh, restaurateurs who can provide food that's, you know, meets all of those standards as well. 
uh, and working with cooperative extension groups that are very practiced in doing public programming around food and, in fact, are supported through their funding to do that. They make wonderful partners for museums. So thinking outside of just the resources on the staff and thinking about who in the community can be helpful is one way to get over that sort of an obstacle. Uh, I think another one is resources. And in the, the book, I interviewed Kathleen Walls, the wonderful food historian at Plymouth Plantation. And she has um, she likes to think about her, her research in terms of sources and resources. And I thought this was such a useful idea uh, that she works directly from the canon of sources that relate to their site and their time period at Plymouth Plantation. And those are her core sources for the foods that she prepares. And then what she calls the resources are um, material that is in that period but may come from a different geographical location uh, or maybe it's slightly earlier or slightly later, but it can be interpreted uh, in such a way as to feed into what they present on the site. But I think this research issue is extremely important, and making time uh, for research is often challenging in museums, especially where, uh, you know, most of, in a, in a time of sort of austerity, many museums have reached, um, have put more resources into re what is reaching the public directly and fewer into the backstage research. So finding ways to get beyond uh, what I call the cookbook trap, assuming that a historic cookbook can be used appropriately across the country uh, for any type of food presentation, that can be very misleading. So finding ways to get research into the program is quite important. And so another strategy can be to reach out to local universities, history departments, public history departments, museum studies departments, and trying to use those networks to help feed in some research that can really support the specifics of what's appropriate to present at a given location. Um, so that, that issue of finding the real stories, uh, because often the, the myths and uh, nostalgic ideas we've inherited don't really represent what food life was like for people uh, at a given time and place. I think that that's extremely important, and I am going to file that uh, last uh, strategy uh, that you mentioned away for for future projects. I, I'm always open uh, for new projects myself, and now I'm excited to do a food project uh, uh, with a partner. But it is that food food is being uh, is a research topic not just in what used to be called home ec uh, or um, uh, you know domestic science departments which there probably aren't any anymore uh, but it is being used uh, as a lens to look at history and uh, uh, culture in some very interesting ways and there there is a body of research literature that uh, Museums can begin to look look at uh, as as a way of of gaining a better understanding. They don't have to just have that old cookbook as their only uh, resource. And this idea that they can contact uh, other professionals, academics, who I'm sure would be delighted to share their expertise and maybe uh, brainstorm on some interpretive uh, approaches. I think they really are. This, this is an exciting area of study, and it's exciting for museums to be part of this investigation that's going on in our wider culture 
And what I love most about working in food is that it brings together people across boundaries. And this is so important at a time when museums are struggling to working, to reach new audiences, to expand inclusion, to improve participation. Uh, food is something that people gravitate to and share over. And historically, we've seen that again and again and again. The one thing that encourages us to kind of cross bridges and boundaries often is that someone else's food looks so good, it smells so good, and we're so curious about it. So it's something that we're inclined to share. And it can bring together food producers like farmers and processors, um, educators, restaurateurs and chefs, uh, food processors and workers, laborers, uh, and anyone who eats. And so we have this avenue to connect widely across our society, and it involves scholars and museum practitioners as well as the wider public. So it's a very hopeful and exciting way to explore some of the big questions that, that we face as individuals and in a society. You know what I'm... I, I I am so uh, pleased that you you mentioned this this concept of of crossover and partnership and uh, have I'm sure uh, you've run across uh, organizations that are being able to use say the the trend and excitement of farmers markets mm-hmm. as a, as a place of outreach uh, for uh, for reaching their community. Uh, did you stumble across uh, any uh, organizations that are that are doing that kind of outreach? I absolutely have, yes, and that is a wonderful strategy. You know, just as a, a data point, farmers markets, uh, the USDA tracks how many there are, and in the last, I believe it's 15 years, they have increased fourfold in the United States, which is really dramatic, and that means that there are not too many communities that you cannot find a farmer's market somewhere in a, you know, a radius that's reachable for museum staff. So I do see lots of museums that are venturing into presenting at markets. Uh, Strawberry Bank has done that, and Plymouth Plantation has done that. Also, um, festivals, food festivals that might be happening in an area. Um, thinking about Strawberry Bank again, there was a chowder festival that happens in the city, and that was a great opportunity for that museum to present uh, the history of codfish and salt cod fishing in that area and how that played into the development of the classic New England chowder. So um, there are these, these venues that we can take our content and our presence out of the museum walls and be in contact with a much wider public. Um, also, uh, there's some very exciting work being done in Massachusetts by a land trust organization, the Trustees of Reservations. They've partnered to create a public market, and they present educational programming around food, um, and they partner with uh, groups that work with um, shelter residents and uh, people on food support programs to help, you know, show some budget-friendly ways of using in-season produce. And so we're seeing, I feel like we're seeing some really nice um, venturing out into the wider food scene from museums and other educational institutions that work with the public. And, and certainly uh, that's a venue that we can easily work within and have expertise and knowledge that isn't replicated at the next booth. And, and we find people really enjoy it. Well, and and another point that you have made throughout this program, and I, I think that it it 
needs to be underscored is that while museums can take a cue from their uh, uh, sources, their collection, their historical narrative or the narrative of their place, they don't necessarily need to be constrained by it uh, as they look to the needs uh, or int- needs of their immediate community, whatever that community means to them, and come up with uh, new ways of addressing the uh, new opportunities. Yes, and I think there, you know, it, it isn't difficult to do. I mean, it doesn't mean we have to betray our commitments as institutions. Um, in the, uh, I've, I've spent time talking to staff from the Jane Adams Hull House in Chicago, and they are very clear that everything they do comes from their mission. Uh, but what they're asking themselves is, what, what are the current issues and concerns that can be connected back to our mission, to our collection, to what happens in our galleries? And it, with food, it is not too difficult to draw those lines because um, there are very few questions that we're asking ourselves that have not been present through our past. And, and so I've yet to really stumble across any difficulties finding a way to, to draw that line uh, without you know, feeling like we're outside of our expertise. This is this has been such a fabulous conversation, Michelle. Thank you on behalf of the of our profession for taking the time to write uh, this book to do the research. That's another area that, as busy museum professionals, we tend not to do. And uh, this is a wonderful uh, contribution to our collective uh, literature and knowledge base. And I, as I said before, I am sure that you. Uh, are would be very uh, interested and happy to help any institution, any uh, anyone who's listening out there to learn how they might be able to brainstorm uh, using food to connect to their communities and to reach deeper into what food really reflects about us as a culture, what we respect, what we uh, value, and how we think of think of ourselves and ourselves in relationships to others. So thank you so much for being on the program today. Well, it's my great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, and I really do welcome contacts and hope that we can build a network of, of people who are serious, uh, doing serious work interpreting food in, in our nation's museums. Fabulous. And so, again, thank you, Michelle, and thank you, listening audience. And I will be back next week with another edition of Museum Life. So stay tuned. And it has been a pleasure to get back on the air with all of you. So until next week, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. (laughs) 